Let us pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this time that we get to gather and open your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts here would be acceptable in your sight. Lord, please lead us this morning that you have a fresh word for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My friends, if you haven't already done so, please get a Bible out to Galatians chapter 3. That's Paul's epistle to the Galatians. We're going to be looking through chapter 3, starting at verse 10, and moving forward through verse 7 in chapter 4. So that's Galatians 3, 10 to 4, 7. Since we haven't been in this epistle lately, I thought I'd start off just giving a little bit of a context. I figured it would be fitting to start the new year off with the gospel so that we can start this year by being rooted in the truth of the good news and that we would use the gospel as a lens in which we would view our lives and a lens in which we'd view our world. So just some initial context on Paul's letter to the Galatians. In Paul's letter, we see the truth that our justification, right, our right standing before God is a gift of God's grace. It's unearned, it's undeserved, and it's to be received by faith. And we also know that faith itself is God's free gift. So the doctrine of justification by faith alone is of critical importance because we are saved through Christ alone, not by our own law-keeping. He bore the curse of the law in our place when he was on the cross. And so by being united to him through faith, we find ourselves clothed in his perfect righteousness, his righteousness credited to our account. And due to this fact that we are united to the Savior by faith, we receive the rights of sonship. So these are just some initial ideas here, and I'll continue with a few more before we dive into our, our text here. As we speak about justification, we can define it as that act by which unjust sinners are made right in the sight of God, right? So the supreme need of an unjust person would be righteousness, and this lack of righteousness in ourself is supplied by Christ on behalf of believing sinners. So justification by faith alone really means justification by the righteousness or merit of Christ alone and his work, not by our goodness or good deeds. It's a gift. So we are declared, counted, and reckoned to be righteous in the sight of God when God imputes the righteousness of Christ to our account. And this faith, this faith that justifies, is not an empty profession of faith. It's not a, I believe, and now I can go live and sin as much as I want. But true faith, true faith is a living and active faith. Faith is personal trust. It clings to Christ alone for salvation. Saving faith is also a penitent faith. And it embraces God and embraces Christ as both Savior and and Lord. So let us, with that, dive into the text. First, actually, I would like to read from Galatians 3, verse 5 to 9, to give us a little bit of initial context before we go into verse 10. So if you can just follow along with me, I'm going to be reading from verse 5 to 9. At verse 5, it says, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? 
just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that's a quote from Genesis 15. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. So what I want you to see there is that Abraham was justified before he did any works of the law. In fact, before the law was given at all, before he did anything, he was justified before God through faith alone. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So now with that, let's look at our our passage here. Let's start with verse 10. Verse 10, we see, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, And do them. So, what I'd like to draw your attention to here is the reality that if any of us rely on the works of the law to be justified, we will never be justified. Because human sinners, we cannot possibly abide by all things written in the Mosaic law perfectly. We're not perfect, right? We're imperfect. We can't possibly abide by all things. In fact, there's only one person who was able to abide by all things perfectly, and this person was Jesus Christ. He is the only one who is able to keep the law perfectly in its entirety. So we see here that the Mosaic law cannot be the source of our salvation, right? Because it actually pronounces a curse on anyone who fails to abide by its every commandment. And we see that in Deuteronomy 27 and 28 and Leviticus 26. So at verse 10 here, Paul's main point is that no sinner can keep the law in its entirety, right? So anyone who depends on their own personal observance of the law will be standing under the law's curse. Now, of course, we know that there is mercy found in Jesus Christ. And anyone who is not united to Christ by faith will be judged by their works measured against the law's standard, which is perfection, and thus be condemned. So we know that ultimately the law cannot bring life, right? Its purpose is to condemn, and by condemning, it actually points man in his desperation to the Savior who can bring life, because in him was life, and the life was the light of men, as we see in John 1, 4. Let's look at verse 11 here. Verse 11 says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. No one is justified before God, right? In the sight of God, the righteous shall live by faith. The one who is declared righteous is only someone who lives by faith in Christ. This quotation, the righteous shall live by faith, is a citation from Habakkuk 2.4, right? And it's a key Reformation principle. And this is an announcement that the only means for sinners to receive righteousness and life, eternal life, is by and through faith in Jesus Christ. 
through faith in him, his righteousness imputed to our account, or counted, credited to our account. The righteous person lives by their steadfast trust in the Lord and not by trusting in their own law-keeping, which will not justify. So we see to have that right relationship with God, we must trust God. And to remember here, the righteous shall live by faith. We have to remember that faith itself is also a gift. Faith is not a work that we do. Faith is a gift of God. And true faith does bear fruit as well. So while the law doesn't justify, we see that true faith will justify. And in response of of true faith, the fruit of true faith, well, then we will actually respond in obedience and in in law-keeping. Look at verse 12. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So we see this contrast here that Paul is making. The law is not of faith, right? It's, it's not of the righteousness that's based on faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. So we see that Paul speaks here of the law apart from the promise of God's covenant of grace, which is a promise that comes through faith, right? The law is not of faith. In Leviticus 18.5, we see the requirement for all those who seek to be justified by the works of the law. The requirement is perfect obedience to the law, right? Imperfection. And later in Leviticus, we actually see the prediction of the failure and curse that would follow for man's disobedience, for Israel's disobedience. So we see in Leviticus 18.5, Leviticus offers life in the land of Israel, right? It offers Life, in some sense, to those who keep the law. Life in the land of Israel, in some sense, it prefigures eternal life. But as Paul already implied, no sinful human can perfectly keep the law, right? It's impossible. And therefore, no one can receive the promise of life, the promise of life in the fullest sense, life in Christ, eternal life. No one can receive this promise of life through their own law-keeping. So we start to see that contrast here, the promise of God through faith and the purpose of the Mosaic law, which is to point out our sin. Look at verse 13. At verse 13 we see, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So because we have violated the law, we are under the law's curse and thus God's condemnation. Right, this divine curse that's the result of disobedience. But here's the good news. Christ bore the law's curse in our place. Right? So God had a rescue plan for this. God's provision for rescue from the law's curse on all who disobeyed is the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross and the perfect life that he lived in our place. Christ redeemed us. We see at verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. So Greek speakers would use the term redeemed to generally describe buying someone out of slavery, right? By paying a price, which is exactly what Christ did for us as we were enslaved to sin. He died by paying the price. He lived. He paid the price. So his death substituted for our own. As Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, 
Paul says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So in verse 13, we see that Christ's work is prominent here in redemption, right? Christ is the only possible means for redemption. Without Christ, we stand condemned. At verse 13, we also see, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 21. And specifically, the context there is the law's requirement that the body of a violator would be suspended from a tree. And this would signal God's utter rejection, but this was also fulfilled in the form of Jesus' execution on a Roman cross. And so we see the symbolic similarities here. But it's a real reality that Jesus really bore the curse of the law in our place. He stood in our place through his death on the cross. There's a real transfer of our sin to his account, right? A real imputation. Our sin imputed to his account. His righteousness really imputed to our account. This is a real reality. So that on the last day, on the last day, we can stand before a holy God and enter heaven because of what Christ has done on our behalf. Let's look at verse 14 here. Verse 14 says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, so in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham here, right, that Abraham would be the father of many nations, that it would come to people that aren't Jews, right? It would come to the Gentiles. Really, the blessing of Abraham here is, in some sense, the blessing of Eden, eternity, and restored paradise with God, right? The promised eternal Land. So we see those ideas here. So Paul starts to circle back to his main argument here that justification and membership in the family of Abraham and the people of God comes to all those, including the Gentiles, including non-Jews, who have faith in the gospel's message, right? So believing Gentiles whose lives are marked by the indwelling spirit, right? The promised spirit through faith at the end of verse 14. Believing Gentiles whose, whose lives are marked by this indwelling spirit fulfill the promise that through Abraham, all nations would be blessed. We actually saw that idea when we read verse 8 before verse 10. And verse 8 said, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. I really love how Paul puts it there. He preached the gospel. God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. The gospel and the way of salvation spans the ages. It doesn't change. We also see here this twofold statement of God's purpose. Firstly, that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles as well as the Jews, as we said. And secondly, that all might together receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Believers not only have forgiveness of sin, but also the living presence of God within them. This is amazing. Let's look at verse 15. Paul continues to work with this. He actually gives us a human example to explain what he's talking about. At verse 15, 
To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. So we see that the Sinai covenant, right, where, where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses, this covenant was an interim covenant. It did not contradict the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, okay? So Paul uses an example here, and he's referring to covenants made between human beings. And generally, these, type of, these types of covenants were sealed with an oath, and they appealed to God, and therefore were never to be broken, even if one of the parties in the covenant lied in order to obtain the agreement, which we actually see in Joshua 9. They're never to be broken, these human covenants, right? So if these human covenants are never to be broken between parties, then what about the nature of a covenant to which God himself is a party? That cannot be broken, right? So Paul's main point here really is that simply the promise of justification through faith first made to Abraham is permanent, right? This happened before the Ten Commandments were given, before the Sinai Covenant, and the promise still stands. The promise came first, the law after. Justification through faith is permanent. The gospel spans the ages. Verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So we see that God promised saving blessing to the nations through Abraham and his offspring, right? Christ descended from Abraham according to his human nature. We also see that Paul describes the covenant as promises made to Abraham and to his offspring. Again, as we said before, God promised to bless all the nations, of the earth and the whole earth through Abraham and his offspring. At verse 16, it's interesting what Paul does is he takes this further step and what he does is he observes that the term offspring is in the singular rather than the plural. So Paul makes this relation here that the singular nature of the word offspring foreshadows the single person of Jesus Christ through whom the promise would ultimately be fulfilled. Of course, Paul would have been well aware that the noun offspring or seed can be used in the singular or the plural. But what Paul is affirming here is that Christ is the descendant, is the seed. He, he is the offspring to whom the promise finally refers to. And so others become Abraham's seed. They become related to Abraham by virtue of their union with Christ through faith. So God's blessing of justification by grace through faith spans the ages and the law. So this ultimate messianic blessing would come through a single individual who is Christ. So let's look at verse 17 and 18 here. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So how is Abraham justified? He wasn't justified by the law. He's justified by faith. 
So Paul's purpose here is to show that there were centuries that passed before the law was given at Sinai, okay? The, and we know that the giving of the law was after the promise, right? So the law cannot add to or subtract anything from God's first and only way of salvation through the gospel. The law does not change what took place when Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. The word gave is important here too at the end of verse 18, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise, right? God gave it to Abraham, the inheritance. This emphasizes here that our salvation is a free gift of God. It's not of our own works. It's not of our own law-keeping. It's rooted in grace alone. Salvation's a gift. He gave it to Abraham by a promise, the inheritance. God saved Abraham through promise, not law. And the original way of salvation is still operative. Okay, so what does this mean then? Well, the law does not oppose the promises. The law is not bad. It does not oppose the promises, but it assumes them. The Mosaic law here shows us the hopelessness of earning salvation by works or by our own law keeping, right? And points God's people to faith in Christ because we cannot abide by all things, as we saw back in verse 10. In fact, if our, our right standing before God, if our righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. Righteousness does not come through good works. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the gospel message. If righteousness comes through the law, there was no purpose of Christ coming in the first place, but he did come. So then why the law? Look at verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Right? We already said this. Christ is the offspring in which what Paul is relating to here. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So again, at verse 19, why the law? Why then the law? What's the purpose of the law? Well, the law reveals sin as sin. It shows us God's holy standard, right? It reveals our sin. The law defines sin more specifically. The commandments, they define sin. Also, we see in the Levitical system, we see there's this idea of temporary atonement for our sin through animal sacrifice, as we touched on back in Hebrews. And this temporary atonement points to Christ's once-for-all atonement, right? So we see this. The law reveals our sin, but the giving of the law was temporary. There's a few potential ideas here, as this is these two verses, different commentators um, talk about this differently, but most of them think that the intermediary here is Moses, right? So we know that Moses mediated between God and Israel when God made his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, right? When the commandments were given, Moses was the mediator between God and Israel, okay? We see that in Exodus. Moses acted between God and man. Angels were present. The law, right? The law came to man indirectly, right? Moses was a mediator. That implies there's more than one party involved here, right? 
But with the promise given to Abraham, to contrast that, the promise given to Abraham, God acts directly and unilaterally, right? Because God is one, as we see at the end of verse 20, because God is one, his ultimate revelation comes not through an intermediary, but from him alone, right? So Paul might have this implicit comparison in mind between the direct access to God that the gospel gives and the distance that sin made necessary between God and human beings when he gave the law. Again, this has led to a few different interpretations. We also see at the end of verse 18, God is one. And this is specifically, obviously, this has monotheistic overtones. And the quote from Deuteronomy 6.4 says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So God's covenant with Abraham, right, the promise, the gospel in which Abraham believed and he was, it was counted to him as righteousness, God's covenant with Abraham, because it did not involve a merely human mediator, Moses, demonstrates God's unity, right? God is one. It demonstrates his unity more clearly than at Sinai, right? Direct access. And we know that whatever comes from Christ comes from the one true God, for Christ is fully God and fully man. So the promise comes through God alone. However we interpret this, the general thought is it seems that the promise must be considered superior to the law, right? The law was mediated by man, Moses. He is the intermediary. But the promise, Moses doesn't mediate. This is direct access through the gospel. God alone, Christ alone. Let's continue to move on here. Let's look at verse 21 to 22. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So Paul asserts here, the law is not bad, right? The law is not bad. It's actually very good in its function. We also see that righteousness cannot come through the law for sinners, we cannot find life apart from the gospel. So it's because of human sinfulness that the law was never able to give life. And in Romans 8, uh, verse 3, it says, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Right? So we, we can't find life apart from the gospel. Also see at verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Look at those words there, given, right? He gave it to Abraham that by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. I was talking to my friend this week and this seemed to relate to what we see in Romans eleven thirty-two. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. The scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. And we see that there. So the law served a purpose here. It, it puts us under a curse. It puts our sin into perspective. And then Christ would come to deliver us from that curse. Right? So we see 
humanity's inability to keep the law. And it's humanity's inability to keep the law, not the law itself, that is the source of humanity's broken relationship with God. The law, again, shows us that we are in slavery to sin and thus imprisoned and in need of someone who can set us free. And that person is Jesus Christ. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Right? We are talking about this idea. We are held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. A couple ideas here. At verse 23, now before faith came. Of course, Abraham is our example of justification by faith. So it's not that there was no saving faith before Christ came, but through the new covenant of faith, the new covenant, we see the fullness revealed, right? We see faith in its fullness. We see everything revealed through Christ, full knowledge of Christ, full knowledge of his work. So what Abraham believed, what his belief was looking forward through the promises of God to the cross as we look back at the cross. It's the same faith. Abraham was justified by faith as are we. We also see in verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. So in the Greco-Roman world, the term guardian was generally a servant that was responsible for a child's training, right? A child's training, especially for pointing out misbehavior, for discipline, things of that nature. So like a guardian, the law pointed out our sin, right? And so we see Paul speaking uh, in this context about the law holding believers captive and imprisoning them. And he, he probably has the guardian's temporary role in a person's life in mind here as he makes this comparison. So Paul's point again here is that the law prepared a way. It prepared a way for the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham through the gospel, right? It prepared a way. Let's look at verse 25. I'm going to read through 25 to 29. Verse 25 says, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, so a lot, of, a lot of things packed in there. But now that faith has come, at verse 25, again, that full reality in Christ, everything is revealed through the new covenant. We're no longer under a guardian. We're no longer condemned under the law. We are justified through faith in Christ. At verse 26, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We see this, this theme here. It's all through faith. We are adopted sons because we are united to Christ, who is the true son. And we're not merely sons of Abraham, but sons of God through the union with Christ, who is God's son. Right? 
But now that faith has come, and remember, again, remember, faith is not a work. Faith is a gift. And faith will go on to bear fruit in our lives if it's true saving faith. We're justified by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone in that it doesn't have fruit. It will bear fruit, as Luther's big quote was. We also look at verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have, you have put on Christ. And so we see here a couple ideas. Obviously, we can look at the sacrament of baptism here, which from our 39 articles, we see that it, it itself is a sign of regeneration or new birth, where the promises of the forgiveness of sins and of our adoption to be sons is visibly signified and sealed, right? It's an outward sign And then we have the inward reality that takes place at another point in time when regeneration happens, when you are born again of the Holy Spirit, right? When you are saved. And obviously in the imagery of baptism, we see that, that you go down to death. Your old self is going down to death. And then you come up out of the water as new creations, right? So again, we see the outward sign in the water baptism that that points us to that inward reality, of regeneration, of being born again. And this is exactly what he's talking about. Into Christ, have put on Christ. Verse 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism by the Holy Spirit, right? Regeneration. Paul is primarily interested here in this whole concept of putting on Christ, okay? Of course, we have that imagery being washed clean in his living waters being clothed in his white robes, right? That's the imagery. To put on Christ, to be clothed in Christ, implies that his righteousness is our covering. He covers up our sin, his white robes. We see it in the garden. We see this covering all through Scripture when God actually makes clothes for Adam and Eve, right? We see these ideas all through Scripture, So to be clothed in Christ, again, implies that his righteousness is our covering. And we are a new creation in Christ. And this all happens through faith in the person and work of Christ. And this union with Christ, again, makes us new people, new creation. We also see at verse 28 here, this wall of separation between Jew and Gentile, it's removed all old categories that fostered human inequality and social division have dissolved for believers. See that reality at verse 28. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. We also see in, in these verses the union with Christ, which makes us an offspring or seed of Abraham, right? At verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Heirs of the promise that God gave to Abraham through our union with Christ. And now as we work through to close, let's look at chapter 4, verse 1 to 3. Verse 1 to 3 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Right? So Paul has already talked about this idea of the law and, the, and being a guardian, comparing it, right? We're under guardians. 
The heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, right? He's in prison. Though he is the owner of everything, though he has the inheritance, he is under the guardian, under guardians and managers, right? Again, under the law, until the date set by his father, until Christ comes, until the fullness is revealed. No more curse of the law when that happens. We see at verse 3 also, we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Most commentators believe that Paul's referring to the basic elements that make up the world according to ancient philosophic thought, non-Christian thought, you know, earth, wind, water, fire. Sometimes these elements were even worshipped or associated with Greek gods. So it's likely that Paul is speaking here of enslavement under idolatry as a prime example of the sort of misguided and sinful behavior that the law condemns, right? The Gentiles being under paganism. The elementary principles that are often, and oftentimes they have dark principalities behind them, right? So we hear those kind of demonic overtones, right, to be enslaved, and the law condemns these things. Look at verse 4 to 7 as we close. Verse 4 to 7, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Well, friends, this is why we celebrate Christmas. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. No longer slaves, no longer under a guardian, the law, no longer under the law's curse, no longer enslaved to any other worldly idolatries, principles, or principalities. Thus, no longer condemned, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When the world was at the exact right point in history, God sent forth his Son. The time set by the Father, the time when the promises of God would be fully realized in Jesus Christ, God's eternal Son, born of woman, born without sin, Christ being without sin, yet born under the law, not only as one obligated to fulfill it, but also as one identified with sinners who are under the curse of the law. His death freed us from the curse. He came as the babe in the manger, the heavenly food for the world, the bread of life, to live a perfect life in our place and to die a perfect atoning death in our place once for all. His perfect obedience to the law is our ground for being declared righteous. He rescued us from the slavery of sin because he abided by all things written in the book of the law for us. Here, the gospel message, no longer slaves, but sons and heirs to the glorious inheritance of salvation, of eternal life found only in Jesus Christ. My friends, this union of us as believers with our Lord is so close that we have the same loving, familial relationship with God 
that Christ himself has. We are sons. This same relationship that enabled Christ to call upon God saying, Abba, Father. We have this relationship with our loving Heavenly Father because of Christ. And we are heirs to the promise that God gave to Abraham. Salvation through faith alone. In our Lord Jesus Christ alone. He came because he loves you. He came to rescue you, to save you at the perfect time. He loved you, lived and died for you. Let us believe in him because the promise still stands. The gospel spans the ages. Great is his faithfulness. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. To God alone be the glory. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that the promise still stands, Lord. The gospel of our salvation. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the gift of faith. You're everything to us, Lord. Lead us this day. Lead us this week and lead us through this new year that the gospel would be the lens in which we live our lives and that through our true faith we would bear fruit in obedience to your law. True fruit rooted in the gift of faith that you've given us. We lift this time up to you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.